um, after getting home. So um, a couple things. We'll end at 5-2. Uh, Erica's going to share a few reflections on Donna tonight, so help me remember to end at 5-2 if I'm churning along. I thought tonight it might be useful to look at the, instead of what we tend to do is stigmatize or demonize selfing, but uh, what would be probably more useful is just to see the natural causes and conditions of creating a self. Just to get interested in how the mind does it, all the different ways, some ways more toxic than other ways, or has an ill effect more than other ways, but just to get the naturalness of the conditioned mind constructing a self. Because, you know, remember from the ultimate point of view, the, even the concepts of good and bad um, don't really hold up in the way that we conventionally use them. So we don't want to make self-bad, non-self-good. It's just too simplistic. It's all about understanding. I want to begin by reading a little bit from uh, Ajahn Chah. This is an article from his book, Being Dharma. He says, if nature appears to be good, we laugh and rejoice over it. If phenomena appears to be bad, we cry and lament. Thinking of natural phenomena as constituting ourselves or as something we own, we are creating a great burden of suffering to carry. If we realized the truth of things, we would not have all the drama of excitement, elation, grief, and tears. It is said, Pacification is true happiness, and this comes when attachment is rooted out through seeing reality. And I'm skipping around a little later, he says, We still think, this is me, this is mine. We attach to things and invest them with meaning. When we do this, we can't disentangle from them. The involvement deepens, <coughs> and the mess gets worse and worse. If we know that there is no self, that the body and mind are not really self, or really not self, as the Buddha taught. When we keep on investigating, we will eventually come to realize the actual condition of selflessness. We will genuinely see that there is no self or other. Pleasure is merely pleasure. Feeling is merely feeling. Memory is merely memory. Thinking is merely thinking. They are all things that are merely themselves. Good is merely good, bad is merely bad. There's no happiness, no real happiness, or real suffering. There are merely existing, there are merely existing conditions. Merely happy, merely suffering, merely hot, merely cold, merely a being or a person. We should keep looking to see that things are only so much. Only earth, only water, only fire, only air. We should keep on reading these things and investigating this point. Eventually, our perception will change. The tight conviction that there is a self 
and things belonging to a self will gradually come undone. When this sense of things is removed, the opposite perception will keep increasing steadily. Now this is, uh, there's some important things embedded in what he's saying, like this point about perception. The sense of agency of me behind experience is a perception. And where does or what does perception arise from? The perception of me being at common ground now, that arises, that perception arises out of the past, the way the past has conditioned the mind. So there have been a lot of moments in my mind where I've been conditioning or the mind's been conditioning itself, oh yeah, I'm at common ground. So then in this moment, because it's familiar to those past moments, it draws up, draws upon those past experiences, so I have that same perception. So there's a momentum, you know, that perception, the way we perceive, and in particular, particular the way we perceive in terms of self, this self-referencing, or as Ajahn Tanisaro this objectification of self. We make the self, me, an object, right? And then that perception of me being here, that's an object of perception. Then it just, it's a reflex almost to, for it to be reassert, uh, reinserted in the next perception and then the next perception. It just is a habit. So by being mindful, that means we're perceiving, we're training the mind to perceive it's merely this, it's merely that, it's just a sound being known, a sight being known, sensation being known, thought being known. And so now we're rewiring the mind, so to speak. We're collecting, we're starting to collect experience or data that doesn't insert that self. And there's a tipping point where Instead of the mind reflexively inserting a sense of self, because that's the sort of collected momentum of perception, now we have a, a history of another way of perceiving. And eventually that's going to outweigh the other ones. But, you know, we have to be respectful of how much momentum that other perception it has. It hasn't been challenged, and so it just keeps replicating itself. I want to read a little bit more here. So Ajahn Chah continues, he says, When the realization of selflessness comes to full measure, we will be able to relate to the things of this world, to our most cherished possessions and involvements, to friends and relations, wealth, accomplishment, and status, just as we do to our clothes. When clothes, when clothes are new, we wear them. We get them dirty, we wash them. After some time, they're worn out, and we discard them. There is nothing out of the ordinary there. We are constantly getting rid of old things and starting to use new garments. We will have the exact same feeling about our existence in this world. We will not cry or moan over things. We won't be tormented or burdened by them. They will remain the same as they were before, but our feeling toward them and understanding of them will be changed, right? Because the perception changes. He goes on, he says, Our knowledge will be exalted, and we will see the truth. We will have attained supreme vision and authentic knowledge of the Dhamma, the way it is. 
the Buddha taught, taught the Dharma, or the Dhamma, that we ought to know and see. And this Dharma is right here within us, within this body and mind. We have it already. We should come to know it and see it. And a little later he says, The Buddha said that the one who sees emptiness, the Lord of Death, cannot follow. When an, when an awakened person passes away, what happens next? There are only the elements breaking up. There is no person or self. So how could there be death or rebirth? There are only earth, water, fire, and air dispersing. These are the traditional elements. The Lord of Death can only follow after earth, water, fire, and air. There is no person to follow. Likewise, if you're looking for a solution to problems, there will always be problems because there's a you. When there's no person, there are no problems. There's no need for solutions. Because there are no problems to solve anymore and no one to solve them. But if you believe that you die, then you're going to be reborn. And then he ends this, just in case this is seeming a little out there for you. He says, Today I'm speaking about the Dharma for grown-ups. When those of childish intelligence hear that there is no self, when they hear that there is nothing truly theirs, not even their body, they may wonder, should I stick a knife in my flesh? Should I smash all the cups and plates and be done with it because nothing is mine? It's not that way. It is thick obscuration that can lead people to such absurd ideas. Right? Because, I mean, we can even understand that that would just be a big self-trip. You know, like, so what's the point? I mean, that is as much a self-drama, what's the point, as thinking we're king of the world or thinking we're the, you know, piece of dung, not worth anything. There's so many ways to project a self-trip, to get caught in a self-trip, including some drama about the world or existence being empty of self. We can have a self-trip around that too. So let's uh, reflect on some of the ways that we naturally, organically construct a sense of self. This is from a collection of suttas that Andy Olensky put together. He, for a long time, has been the executive director, though he's dropped that role, but senior scholar at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, a wonderful place out in uh, Massachusetts. And by the way, uh, um, Edith Hanel, some of you know, um, one of our community members who lives in southern Minnesota, is going to be part of a 25-year reflection at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. And she wants to interview people who've been out there. So I think maybe a couple of you have been out there for programs. If you have, let me know and I'll connect you with Edith. She just wants to have a conversation about your experience out there so they can do some long-range visioning, planning for the future. So Andy's basically reflected on uh, the different ways we uh, that support our belief or our habit in reconstructing over and over again a sense of self. And so each one I bring up, and these are really from Andy, each one I bring up, then just, you know, as I'm talking, just reflect how that that you see that in your own mind. Like, the first one is, doesn't there seem to be some sense of constancy or continuity, right, in my experience? So just have a sense, like, it seems like I'm the same person now at 8, 
entertain that I was at, you know, in the middle of the afternoon, or that I was on Sunday, or that I was when I was back in my 40s, or, you know, even in the 70s. It seems like I'm the same person I was in the 70s. In some, some, there's some kind of constancy, something that's constant there, some underlying essence. So even though we understand, of course, you know, we're not oblivious to the fact there's a lot of changing conditions. My body isn't the same, even isn't the same as Sunday. But there does, on a surface level at least, there's a sense of some constancy. So just tune into that. And of course, if you have any thoughts about that, feel free to raise them. I'm going to share both some of the suttas that Andy put together, but there's some thoughts from an article by Guy Armstrong, too. Here's what Guy Armstrong says about that. He's, he's organizing his own thoughts about how we construct a sense of self. He says, the first false belief that accompanies the concept of self is that of continuity through time. The notion of I carries with it the belief that the self is unchanging through a multitude of life experiences, permanent in some way from birth, at least, until death. We feel that the person reading this journal is in some fundamental way the same one who went through third grade at, old, at that old primary school. This belief gives rise to the fear of death. When we contemplate the end of something dear that we take as continuous and unchanging, we are shaken. <coughs> we may also touch this misunderstanding when someone close to us dies. A few years ago, my older sister, to whom I was quite close, died unexpectedly. I fell into a period of confusion because I couldn't understand what had become of her. And I bet a lot of you have had this experience being around or in that experience of a friend or someone you know well dying. And especially just the visual image of that corpse. Or even I remember this with our cat, one of our cats that died. And uh, there's this powerful, I think it's common, this powerful reflex like it's shocking to us that that being isn't there. I mean, it's real clear when you see the dead body that something is gone. And the thing that we saw as the person is gone. And even though we know that that's what happens, it reveals this strong belief in constancy or continuity because we're so surprised, it's shocking that that person's not there anymore because we don't understand it, because there's this presumption of constancy or continuity. Just to finish this paragraph, this mystery provoked in me an ongoing contemplation of what a person is. I found that the assumption of continuity was at the root of my misunderstanding of my sister's life and my own. Conventionally, of course, there is continuity but ultimately, because of the impermanent nature of things, there is not. The Buddha says, If someone says the phenomenal field is self, that is not tenable. The rise and fall of the phenomenal field, you know, what we see, what we hear, what we think, what we touch, the rise and fall of the phenomenal field is discerned. And since its rise and fall are discerned, 
it would follow, myself rises and falls. That is why it is not tenable for anyone to say, the phenomenal field is self. The phenomenal field is non-self. Then another passage from the Buddha, practitioners, consciousness comes to be independence on a dyad. And how, practitioners, does consciousness come to be independence on a dyad? Independence on an organ, right? The, the eye is sensitive to what? Well, it's sensitive to some color or some form. And consciousness arises in conjunction with the sensitivity, seeing some form, and consciousness arises in conjunction with those two things, and the three of them together make the experience of, con uh, of contact, eye consciousness. And so we might want that consciousness to be the thing that has that constancy, that continuity, but when we observe consciousness, we see it's always rising in conjunction with an object. And that object being known requires a certain sensitivity, and then sensitive to what? To the object. And it's the three that come together and the three that cease. We don't actually find a consciousness that is there waiting for an object to be known. We only find consciousness knowing an object. But we can easily presume, because the consciousness is always knowing an object, we can presume you know, like we, we do in so many different ways, we mistakenly presume that like, it's evidence for constancy or continuity. And this I've read before this passage, but I think it's worth repeating. This body's like a ball of foam, and feeling is like a bubble. Perception is like a mirage. Mental formations like a pithless tree, right? Like our dreams or ideas they seem substantial, but when we really look, there's really not anything beyond, behind our ideas. And consciousness is like a trick. So says the kinsman of the sun, the Sakya clan that the Buddha's, his family, uh, I think they consider, I think Sakya actually refers to the sun. It's sort of like that's their last name or something like that. So says the kinsman of the sun, the Buddha. However one reflects on them and carefully investigates, they are empty and deserted to one who sees them properly. Their lineage is only this, a nonsense, babbling fantasy, revealing itself a killer. No essence is discovered here. So that's one way, that idea of constancy is just there, sort of one of those misperceptions, these distortions, that tendencies to dis the mind's tendency to distort perception by presuming or projecting the sense of constancy onto experience. So an, another way of saying this is like we're constantly uh, rarefying the experience of continuity or that there's some, there's some relationship between what was and what is. We're kind of making a big deal out of that and we're not noticing the cessation, like how that moment ceased and another moment was born. We tend not to, the mind, the attention tends not to emphasize how things are ending, ceasing, but how things are conditioning the next thing. 
which makes it feel like appropriate. I mean, clearly, we, it feels like there's continuity or constancy. So there's got to be an underlying reason for that that can be discerned. The, another, the second one is agency. And we talked, or I talked a little bit about this during the guided meditation, the sense of a doer. There is a sense of a freely choosing agent, someone who makes choices, who has some control or free will. And that's, you know, pretty apparent perception for me and probably for all of us, this sense of an agent doing something, moving my posture to relieve the pain, somebody who decided to come to Common Ground tonight. But even though we tell ourselves a story, like, yeah, I decided to come to Common Ground tonight, the actual process of getting here is distinct from that story, I decided to come to Common Ground tonight. Like, if we really broke it down in an honest way and looked at the process of coming here, we'll see that it, this idea of an agent who did it is uh, superfluous. And I think I've mentioned in this class, and many of you probably know about this exper experiment better than I do, but there have been experiments with uh, asking people to, or causing people to move their hand in some way, and they find that the cognitive process in terms of brain activity that's related to the choice or the decision to move your hand comes after the movement of the hand. So the story that I decided to come to Common Ground tonight for the Buddhist Studies class is very likely to be a story that we're telling ourselves after the fact of having gotten to Common Ground tonight. It, it creates, it makes this make sense and, and like from a relative self point of view, it makes it seem sane, because I have the story, I decided to come here. But is that actually what happened? There was this choosing, free choosing agent who looked at possibilities and then chose. And it's not even saying that you might have had that moment there in the kitchen, I'm not feeling that good, maybe I'll stay home tonight. No, I think I'll go. So there might have even been that conscious moment where the decision, what we call the decision-making, was happening. But even that, when discerned clearly, looked at clearly, is just that natural process of causes and conditions. This is what Guy says about that sense of agency. He says, the second false belief about the self is that there is an independent center within experience. Oops, that's not, I'm going to read the third one. The third is that the I implies some measure of control. The Buddha once challenged, was once challenged in debate by Sakya, Sakaka, uh, Sakaka, a Jain, who vowed to refute the teachings of not-self. In reply, the Buddha asked him if his form was under his control. When you say thus, material form is myself, do you exercise such any such power over material form as to say, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus? And then he answered, when he could not answer, a thunderbolt-wielding spirit appeared above him, ready to split his head in two. 
under duress. Why? Because he refused to answer the Buddha. <laughs> Don't you love these stories? <laughs> under duress, he finally agreed that he could not thus command his body and so could not actually regard it as self. We can discover this same lack of control any time we fear, feel embarrassed about our body. How often have we felt ashamed that we weren't better looking or taller or finer boned? Yet all these characteristics are beyond our choice or control. That we take responsibility for them means that we have fallen under the false belief of controllability. This element of control also explains why many people, the hardest place to, uh, also explains why for many people, the hardest place to accept the truth of not-self is in the area of volition or decision-making. Surely if control is being exerted, there must be a controlling agent or entity. And the Buddha quotes the same passage that uh, Guy Armstrong quoted. He quotes another one. Uh, Venerable Sir, who consumes the nutri nutriment consciousness? Who makes contact? Who feels? Who craves? And the Buddha responds to this person, Not a valid question. I do not say one consumes. One makes contact, one feels, one craves. Since I do not speak thus, if one should ask me, Venerable Sir, for what is the nutriment consciousness a condition? With what as condition does contact come to be? With what as condition does feeling come to be? With what as condition craving come to be? This would be a valid question. And it really matters how we're, we ask these questions. Um, like who's conscious who makes contact like who has sense contact who experiences things so we often um, want to you know ask a question that basically will give us the answer that we want because the question implies that there is somebody somebody is making this choice. Who's making this choice? And so the Buddha would say something like, uh, you know, this action, this seeing, this contact, this grasping. He would ask the question, when what's present is their grasping? You know, well, when there's, you know, craving. Well, when what happens is does craving arrive? Well, when somebody you know, when there's a positive, pleasant feeling or a negative feeling, then the mind begins to crave, the craving to get rid of the unpleasant or craving. Well, where does feeling come from? And with what conditions does feeling arrive? Well, when you have sense contact, there's going to be a feeling. Well, what is there needed in order to have sense contact? Well, you need a, you know, you need these six sense gates. You need to be a sensitive organism. So the Buddha talks about things in this conditional way. He doesn't address the question, you know, who does this, who grasps, because it assumes there is an entity, an agent behind it. So that's what, why we can, and even in our own practice, we can use a different language, like, uh, why am I so upset? You know, that's not a helpful question in our practice because it, it causes us to look in the wrong place. It'd be better to ask, what are the conditions here 
that lead to the arising of what I call being upset. What is the mind seeing? What is the mind knowing? What is the mind feeling that's leading to this reactivity arising? So this deconstruction. This is basically a version of the dependent origination. This is how the Buddha addresses the question, there is suffering but no sufferer to be found. So clearly there's suffering. Why else would we be practicing? We wouldn't come to common ground if we didn't experience stress in our lives. If we were perfectly free, alive, loving, wise, no matter the conditions, you know, naturally, out of compassion, we'd be sharing what we know with other people in different ways. But that's not what we're doing. We're studying these teachings because we know that we don't know, at least to some degree, we're still a suffering being and we need, we seek out, we're seeking out support. So that's the second. We have, first was this tendency to impute or to see over and over again some sense of constancy and really getting a sense of how that constancy, like why it appears that way, that there is constancy or continuity. Why does it appear that there's an agent acting? You know, and a lot of it has to do with just the way we language our experience. It's a presumption. Another, the third is ownership. The sense that the body and mind and possessions, even our views, belong to somebody, belong to me. Buddha says, practitioners, there is a self. Would there be what belongs to my... Oh, excuse me. Bhikkhus, there being a self, would there be what belongs to the self? Yes, venerable sir. Or there being what belongs to a self, would there be myself? Yes, venerable sir. So, you know, when there is grasping, right, when there is that activity of grasping, for whatever reason, maybe it's just the habit to grasp, then the cognitive, you know, the thinking part of the mind, it has to presume or impute the self who's grasping or who owns that, who wants that. So the, the dynamic of ownership, you know, it, like when there's a self, there's what the self owns. You, you don't, the concept of self, the activity of selfing, is the activity of possession. A self owns things. I have this view. Or when there's a view, you know, when there's something being grasped, then there's got to be the subject who's doing the grasping so that they imply each other. Another passage. Practitioners, whatever is not yours, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness. And what is it, practitioners, that is not yours? The phenomenal field is not yours. Abandon it. Suppose, practitioners, people were to carry off the grass, sticks, branches, leaves in this jetta's grove, one of the places that the disciples of the Buddha practice back at the time of the Buddha, or to burn them, or to do with them as they wish, would you think, People are carrying us off, burning us, or doing with us as they wish. No, venerable sir. For what reason? Because that is neither our self nor what belongs to our self. 
Now we could, now it's just useful to, you know, with things that we just reflexively think are ourselves or belong to me, like our cell phone. Or <laughs> there's that funny story, I, maybe some of you have heard. Now I'm forgetting who told it. I think maybe Michelle McDonald Smith, one of the uh, longtime IMS teachers. And uh, I think a, a student of hers told her this story of sitting in the airport lounge and, uh, and reading a book. She's got to wait, and somebody's sitting next to her. And uh, she's reaching over to her bag of cookies, and she takes out a cookie, and she's eating it, reading a book, and just passing the time. And then she notices the guy sitting next to her reaching into the bag and eating a cookie. And she just, you can imagine how shocking that would be, like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and, but, you know, it's such an awkward situation, she doesn't say anything. You know, she just assumes, you know, like, like we do sometimes, we just assume it's going to go away <laughs> or fix itself. And she, but, you know, she's not going to give up her bag of cookies, so she continues to eat her cookies, and every once in a while, he also reaches in the bag. And they're doing this for, you know, 20, 30 minutes, and they're getting to the bottom of the bag, and then the, the guy has the goal to pick up the bag and offer her the last cookie or the last couple cookies, and uh, just kind of freaks her out. And she, I don't I forget if she takes them or, or says, no, no, you have them or something like that. Anyway, she gets on the plane and she's getting her stuff organized and she looks at her purse and there's her bag of cookies. <laughs> yeah, so it's like <laughs> the idea of ownership. Because <laughs> it's, it's just this idea that it's ours and it's so real, that idea that it's ours. But like what actually makes like the land that our house is on ours? I mean, it's just this sort of shared meaning that we create that's funny. I don't know the history that well, but evidently with some of the Native American people at the time when the Europeans were taking their land, you know, part of the dynamic of, besides just being uh, defeated and oppressed in all the different ways, but was a different conception of land and ownership. The, between, you know, just cultural definition of ownership and what you own, what you actually possess. And of course, in uh, Western culture, European culture, you know, there's this whole history of le legal property rights and uh, ideas of, like, this is mine, this is my place, and you can't have it unless I sell it to you or you get the legal right of this land. And so we have that, you know, it's you know, at least us Westerners and probably all of us to some degree now on this planet, you know, have taken up this idea of ownership in a very powerful way. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, these sons are mine, this wealth is mine, so are the misinformed incensed, but even their selves aren't their own, let alone sons, let alone wealth. And you can see that any possession, even relatively trivial possessions, are stressful. It's stressful to think that things are ours. And it's like even, I've noticed like with opinions when I'm having discussions, it's such a relief not to be tied to opinions. Like to have an opinion 
but not, it's just the opinion that I spouted in that moment with the facts at hand and the particular tendencies of my mind, this is where I came down. But I don't have to be tied to that. Why? Why be tied to it? Because in the next moment, there may be a, co- a different collection you know, of information that's coming to the fore out of which the view is created. And there's just a lot of freedom to begin to explore our relationship to possessions. The next that uh, Andy brings up is the sense of survival. He says, some of these are my notes from the workshop I took way back in the middle of the 90s with Andy where he covered this material. Enduring personal pattern. Some sense that I've survived, that I survived moment to moment, day to day, even lifetime to lifetime. And here's some passages he quotes here. Bhikkhus, practitioners, sense of self and what belongs to a self is not apprehended as true and established. Then this standpoint for views, namely, this is self, this is the world. After death, I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change. I should endure as long as eternity would not would it not be an utterly and completely foolish teaching? Bhikkhus, sense of self and what belongs to self are not apprehended as true and established, right? So even now, self and what belongs to self are not apprehended as true and established. Then any view, this is self, this is this the world, after death I shall be permanent, everlasting, eternal. Like if we can't find something that's actually here and now, how could we imagine that something survives or continues? If we can't apprehend it here and now, what makes us think that something continues? What is it that continues? Another thing that can evoke a sense of self is a sense, the experience of gratification. Like, uh, I open the refrig- refrigerator, I take out the beverage, I drink the b- beverage, I feel satisfied with the experience. So there's a sense that somebody is gratified through experience. But, you know, the question is, do we understand that experience of gratification? Because a lot of times we, we, um, like, the thought we have about gratification actually doesn't have a lot of relationship to the actual experience of gratification. I mean, think about like food, but sex, uh, growing up, um, retirement. We have these ideas about a lot of things in life, finding our partner, finding a partner for ourselves. And the idea can be huge, but the actual experience of gratification, of getting that thing that you want, doesn't often relate to the idea that we had of gratification. It feels like it's going to be such a big thing. It's like, I love, I love going on retreat and I love leading retreats, but it's always a big push. It's getting easier. And it's always like, okay, day one, <laughs> you know, three more days or four more days or whatever, you know, and it's like, oh, and then I'll be done. But it's never a big deal to be done as I imagine it. 
So this is this idea of satisfaction, this idea that when we get done, then something substantial in terms of a self happens. Practitioners, you may well cling to that doctrine of self that would not arouse sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair in one who clings to it. But do you see any such doctrine of self? No, venerable sir. Good practitioners, neither do I. So, no matter how we imagine, like, the self that's going to be gratified when you can't have that sense of a self that's going to be gratified, that's going to be satisfied with some experience without it actually being stressful. It's a setup. Like uh, Sajoko Beck who says, you know, it's the promise that's never kept, this idea of gratification. And then the next is the sense of responsibility. Like, I'm responsible, I did something, I was responsible for that, I deserve, I'll get, I'll receive the consequences of my action. So this, of course, revolves around the idea of karma, and it's related to that sense of agency or control. Self as the one who does something and then receives results. So this is what Andy quotes, Master Gotama What is the cause and condition why human beings are seen to be inferior or superior? For people are seen to be short-lived and long-lived, sickly, healthy, ugly and beautiful, uninfluential and influential, poor and wealthy, low-born, high-born, stupid and wise. And the Buddha said, student, beings are owners of their karma, their actions, their intentional actions, heirs of their intentional actions, They originate from their intentional actions, are bound to their intentional actions, have their actions as their refuge. It is action that distinguishes beings as inferior and superior. So what the Buddha is saying here is, instead of thinking, having the thought, I did something, I'm going to receive the results. He's saying, intentional actions set things in motion. So the owner is the action. Like when I uh, think something, intend something, it is that thing, that event, that sets something in motion. And so what is that event? Like think about how many things we've done today, choices we've made, intentions we've had that we've acted on. You know, conventionally speaking, it might be appropriate to say, yeah, I did that, I chose to do that, I, I chose to refrain from doing this other thing. But the actual arising of the intentional action, that's just that event. So in a sense, that's what's responsible. We'd like to think that Hitler caused the Holocaust, but there was an intention, maybe an intention of fear, maybe an intention of hatred, Right? and probably thousands, tens of thousands maybe, but it was the the accumulation of all of those intentional actions that then led to this result. And of course, conventionally speaking, we say this person did it, but it's actually action that sets in motion results, not a person. But this is something for us to contemplate.
This is one from uh, Guy Armstrong. He says, uh, there's a false belief about the self that is, uh, about the self is, the second false belief about the self is that of an independent center within experience. We believe that the I sits at the center of all sense impressions as an entity distinct from them and in some way receives or experiences them. This I sees sights, hears sounds, feels sensations and emotions, but is apart from them. We think that the I is independent of what it experiences. That is, the same I can experience happiness or sadness, bodily pain or pleasure. This gives rise to a sense of an observer. Now this is something that creeps in for Buddhist practitioners. This is the sense of an observer within us watching everything that happens inside and outside the body. And so this observer can even be have these, this quality of equanimity, unmoved, here at the center, knowing, letting things be. As Westerners, we often feel that this eye is located in the head, usually just behind the eyes. Even after Vipassana practice has convinced us that every sense impression is impermanent and not really me, we may still feel an unshaken identification with this observer. The difficulty in actually pinning him or her down may not greatly diminish our faith in this creature. So this is some kind of identification with consciousness. Andy says something like, the phenomenal field seems to require a self in the middle of it that strings together this field of experience, you know, the one who knows. The one who feels sad, the one who feels happy. Because even when we're the observer, there's a sense of, of uh, like a location. That may be a good way to have like the witness, the observer has a location. So in terms of mindfulness practice, we're discerning that there is knowing but no knower, no location of the knowing. And so that's why we often phrase the, in practice we phrase it like, this is being known, hearing is being known, seeing is being known, sensations are being known, thinking is being known. Without any idea of where it's being known or how it's being known, but that it's being known. That's what we can say. That's the truth. This is being known. And it's a way, I mean, it's just a one way to begin to uproot the sense that there's a location for the knowing. And this is very subtle, and, uh, and uh, it's not going to fall away immediately. And it's, there's a lot of good work in even getting to the place of, of having that space of the wise, equanimous observer seeing things come and go. There's a really powerful uh, talk that Ajahn Mahabua gave a, a while back before he died. He's a Thai, great Thai monk, meditation teacher, and he talked about his deep insight, awakening experience as this 
incredibly, I mean, the way he describes it, it's just incredibly bright and beautiful state of awareness, expanded, pure, bright, light, unblemished, all-seeing, all-knowing. But it, there was still this very subtle sense of location, of, of, of it being sort of the one who knows, not affected by what's being known. I mean, he was completely not attached, not being pushed around by the conditions that he was experiencing, things that were being thought, sensations that were being felt, sights that were being seen. And it was only when he saw that this, the most, like he describes it literally, the most beautiful thing in the universe was the thing that had to be abandoned. And you see this being debated a lot. You know, one of the things that distinguishes the teachings of the Buddha from a lot of other spiritual religious traditions is, and I I don't want to speak for these other traditions, but there, there seems to be a sense that this unity, this beautiful consciousness, uh, that equating that with the culmination of spiritual practice and the divine or God or you know the different words that we use to talk about that mystical experience of unity and the great beauty and brightness uh, and inclusivity of that awareness. So it's not we're not no one should ever dismiss the uh, insight and freedom of these expanded states these mystical experiences, you might say. But the Buddha was very clear about not mistaking the experience of oneness for freedom. I mean, it's clearly, relative to our ordinary experience, a lot more free than what we ordinarily experience, you know, caught up with self-doubt and, uh, you know, jealousy and all these other more very contracted states, emotional states. But the idea is to, at some point, you know, when the mind is in those, is in one of those expanded, exalted, purified states of consciousness, and there just seems to be a radiant knowing that can know without being pushed around, then the Buddha suggests noticing the impurity of the identification, the identity with that beautiful state of consciousness. Because that's the blemish. And that's what Ajahn Mahabua saw. And that's when the awakening matured. When the the identification with the beautiful witness, the beautiful observer. So not just an ordinary observing state, but a profoundly purified state of observation, knowing. But to see the sort of last remaining constriction in the mind, sort of the mind congealing around the identity of being the, the unity or being the all-knowing or the, the one who is free even. Maybe I'll just end with... Uh, can't, I don't think I... Did I read the four mountain postures last week? I couldn't remember. Okay, this is by uh, a 17th century Zen master, Stonehouse, and it's translated um, Red Pine. I forget what his real name is or his other name is. 
that uh, is a well-known translator. Four mountain postures. Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. So I think these four stanzas, these four mountain postures, are meant to describe our own situation. So the first stanza is probably refers to how we are almost all the time. We're like we're walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. And then the second one, as a practitioner, standing in the mountain, how many dawns become dusk, plant a pine, a tree growing shade. So now there's a little bit of space in the mind, a little bit of reflection in the mind. Standing in the mountains, how many dawns become dusk, plant a pine, a tree growing shade. And then the third stanza, sitting in the mountains, zigzag yellow leaves fall. Nobody comes, close the door and make a big fire. Right? So we're settling in and we're creating, you know, I am just sort of speculating, but that big fire, you know, the joy, the safety of samadhi, really purifying the mind. And then the last, lying in the mountains, pine wind enters the ear. For no good reason, beautiful dreams are blown apart. And here I think uh, some commentary I read, pine wind enters the ear is the the teachings of the Buddha. Lying in the mountains, pine winds, pine wind enters the ear for no good reason. Beautiful dreams are blown apart. And this is especially nice from that story that I just told you about Ajahnmahabhuah, because that was a beautiful dream. That was the most exalted constructed construction of self one could have. And then it, it blew apart. Whatever weight there was to be in the all-knowing, beautiful consciousness, that all fell apart. Walking in the mountains, unconsciously trudging along, grab a vine, climb another ridge. Standing in the mountains, how many dawns become dusk? Plant a pine, a tree growing shade. Sitting in the mountains, zigzag yellow leaves fall. Nobody comes. Close the door and make a big fire. Lying in the mountains, pine wind enters the ear. For no good reason, beautiful dreams are blown apart. So for no good reason, that's like, uh, it's nature itself that awakens, as opposed to me being a good practitioner. We have a couple minutes if people have some thoughts about these teachings tonight that seem appropriate. Anything you'd like to share? Erica, are you ready to say a few words about Donna? Or maybe we'll just, we could just have five minutes, so that would be perfect. We should just go. And uh, next week will we'll be our last week, uh, so, and we'll have small groups, so you can pick up some of these themes uh, next week. Thanks, Erica, for volunteering to share your thoughts. Christy, would you shut the fan off? But it's mine, I own it. <laughs> My little four-year-old charge yelled at me when I tried to tell her that it probably didn't 
make sense to bring the fairly large chunk of street that she found home from the park. <laughs> and this one's mine! Her twin sister piped in, reaching over to grab another piece of crumbled asphalt. She clearly was not going to let her sister obtain something new without her. But you know, I said, trying to sound reasonable, we don't really own the street. <coughs> this clearly was not good enough reasoning for them, and I saw the beginnings of a temper tantrum start to manifest uh, with stunning speed. I couldn't help but be slightly amazed how in their four short years they had already developed such a strong sense of ownership. <laughs> and that one thing was for certain, as we know from this class, that sense of mine or inability to let go hurt. I first stumbled upon the concept of Donna over a over a little over a year ago at a full moon peace walk. I was going through a lot of personal work, dukkha, and I knew that I wanted to develop a meditation practice, but had little financial resources. When I learned that I would not be required to pay each time that I attended Common Ground, it was almost incomprehensible. It was a mixture of pure excitement and disbelief. I was truly floored. I felt compelled to give back in whatever way I could. Since then, I've learned a lot about giving and receiving. I've soon realized that I would never be able to repay in any sort of way um, what Common Ground and Mark's teachings have done for me. But I'm still learning a lot, and I have learned a lot in the process of trying. I've learned that true intention matters that giving only feels good when it doesn't come from a place of guilt. There were times when I felt strongly that I should give, but realized sometimes before or after the fact that I didn't actually have the means to give in the way that my mind designed. I am learning how to honestly assess how much I can give and that it doesn't um, serve anyone to give too much. But it only feels good when it comes not from the mind, but from the heart. I also have learned, though, that it's okay to push oneself a little bit. I, I tried to follow Sharon Salzberg's personal practice, which she shares in her book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. She says that when she first notices an instinct to give, she tries to act on it. Uh, regardless of whether a more rational or ego-based mind second-guesses the instinct. This can feel like a rather spontaneous or even slightly wild way of operating, but I like it. And I'm learning that giving, like everything, is part of the practice. I still remember the time that I uh, volunteered to cook the mung bean doll for one of the common ground retreats a while back. And I truly had no idea what it would take uh, to cook for 30-plus people in a personal kitchen. Completely delusional. And I soon found myself in a five-hour-plus ordeal that featured, among other things, several burnt, uh, burnt pot bottoms. And I was living with my parents at the time when my mom came home, and it looked like a tomato had blown through the kitchen. She was not too happy. <laughs> so I got to practice with her frustration, and later on the retreat I got to practice with the nervousness of watching everyone eat the food and wondering how it tasted. 
And within the context of noble silence, I certainly couldn't expect any compliments. <laughs> I found out later that it actually tasted okay. But <laughs> um, still, uh, even as I continue to search for new ways to give the common ground in a way that feels good, I, I'm totally powerless when it comes to any notion of um, being able to to somehow repay what common ground has done for me. Um, and this, this feels like a particularly profound sentiment just coming off the winter retreat. Um, recently, a friend showed me an Ali Wazal quote that is, or, receiving is a superior form of generosity. And in truth, I think it can be sometimes harder to receive than to give. Um, and perhaps it's because of that that it's arguably even a more important thing to practice with. Um, one thing is, is clear. I know that I want common ground to continue to bloom. There are so many people from nonprofit and communal living backgrounds whose, jaw, whose jaws drop when they hear how successful and sustainable common ground is and how many people have walked in these doors without being required, prodded, or guilted into giving money. At first I was simply awed and inspired, and now as I have received and given to Common Ground, Common Ground community, I feel proud. But despite this pride, Common Ground is not mine, Mark's, or yours. <laughs> and as we've learned in this class, it's not ours. <laughs> so... <laughs> so... Let's give and receive in a way that makes us feel freer from that self, that ache of mind. Let's give and receive in a way that makes us proud. And let's give and receive in a way that makes us want to come back and allows others to come back more and more. Thank you, Erica. If you ever would like to do that for like the next course, for example, feel free to let me know. And uh, you can sign up for the next class. So next week will be the last class, only seven weeks for this particular class. Then we'll take a week off. And then we begin the eight, uh, Eightfold Path, uh, March and April. And you can sign up for that in the entranceway. And uh, see a couple other announcements. Chaz DeCapra will be teaching on Friday night. He's going to give a talk on... Um, climate change and the Four Noble Truths. You might want to join in for that. I'll be doing a day-long retreat on Saturday. And uh, we'll be losing uh, William's yoga space for our Sunday morning children's program. So if any of you have connections with people in the Ivy Arts building, somebody who might have a studio for either the pre-teen group or the teen group, um, we don't have space in this building to run those programs. So we'll be looking for somebody. So if you have any ideas, you can let me or Shelley know. That would be great. Other announcements people have for their community? Yeah. Um, I'm interested in going up to Arrow River Forest Hermitage. Um, I think the third week of March. It's when I have uh, spring break from school. Um, and if anyone else is interested in going up, uh, I don't have a car uh, or drive, so it'd be nice to get a ride and I'd be happy to um, you know, pay for gas or any of that. Um, so if anyone else is interested, just let me know or send the center an email. Yeah, we'll pass it on. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, there's also, uh, do you want to mention the community group that you started? Sure. Is, there, is there space in it? Yeah, uh -huh. yeah there's space. Uh, we started a uh, depression and mindfulness community group. It's the fourth Thursday of every month at 7.30 with an optional meditation at 7. And um, anybody with personal experience of depression is welcome to come. Uh, it's, we've met twice so far and it's going uh, really well. So. And do we have an email for that group yet? Or just should they just contact um, the center? Contact, I think it's Mindful HE Healing uh -huh. or something like that. I'm not sure. Yeah, anyway, you can just contact the center yeah. and we'll connect you with Caleb's group that he initiated. Great, thanks. Anything else for the community people have? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.